This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Greed, and I'm here with my co-host and fellow wizard, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Uh, this is a, a big episode for you. You've been waiting a <laughs> long time for this one, and I'm, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's uh, been... I mean, I've only mentioned a couple times, like for all the badgering I've done to get you to finish this series. I've only, I, it probably feels like I've mentioned a lot in the podcast. Trust me, like it's nothing compared to what James has had to endure. Uh, but here we finally are. Uh, we're talking about the Harry Potter series and yeah, I'm happy. I'm re really, really happy to be here. Um, so we didn't get any lis listener feedback for this episode, so we're just going to dive right into the story of this first film, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, or at that time, the Philosopher's Stone, was published in the UK in June of 1997. That would have been three years old. or oh, Actually, no, two and something. It was J.K. Rowling's first novel. A little over a year later, it came to the States in the September of 1998. Since its publication, it has sold over 150 million copies, making it one of the highest selling books of all time. There are older books like, you know, the Bible or Pilgrim's Progress, you know, stuff like that, that pro have probably sold more. Um, but we don't have any actual recordings for that. So as far as like <laughs> recorded sales, the Sorcerer's Stone is the highest recorded um, uh you know, selling book, even though we know others have surpassed it that are older. Uh, but still, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Um, and the series it spawned uh, has sold over 500 million copies, uh, making it the highest selling book series of all time. And that's with only having seven installments. Like there are some like uh, the, the next runner ups are Goosebumps and Perry Mason, but they have like 60 plus and 80 plus installments respectively. So that's insane. Yes, yeah, so the, 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 this is this is just absolute big leagues, nothing like it in the world as far as how few books there are and how much they've sold. So for, and for the first four, Rowling was putting out a book a year. It got a little slower once the, she got to the, you know, the 700, 800, 900 page books, uh, but that's still a crazy turnover. So getting to the adaptation, shortly after the first book's uh, publication, uh, a young British film producer, David Heyman of Heyday Films, was searching for a children's book to to adapt, and he came across the Philosopher's Stone. So that, you know, so he went and uh, you know met with J.K. Rowling, and then he took it to Warner Brothers. Um, and in 1999, Warner Brothers purchased the rights for the first four books in the series. At that point, Goblet of Fire had not yet been published. But that's pretty common with a, uh, especially nowadays, books will often sell before they're even published. So Warner Brothers brought on uh, screenwriter Steve Clovis to adapt the books. He worked very closely with Rowling um, th throughout the entire series, but particularly with this, this first book to just you know make sure he, he, he got it right and um, were as faithful as possible to the series. Um, many big-name directors were considered. Uh, for a while, uh, Steven Spielberg was uh, contemplating making it his next movie. Um, I could have seen that. Yeah, but uh, there was there was talk that he was going to make it an animated film and sit it in America, um, and he was looking to have oh, to have Harry voiced by Haley Joel Osment. Um, 
which just I love Spielberg, but go away to stop. <laughs> uh, but he instead he opted to make uh, AI artificial intelligence with Osmond, uh, which is a pretty good film. So good call all around. Uh, Rowling's top pick for the director would have been uh, Terry Gilliam, um, which I feel like we got pretty much what he would have done with Goblet of Fire. Um, from what I've seen of Gilliam's stuff, uh, Newell's just insanity <laughs> is pretty similar. Um, so I'm also kind of glad that didn't happen. Other directors in consideration were Jonathan Demme from Silence of the Lambs, Mike Newell, boo, uh, <laughs> Ivan Reitman, uh, you know, Ghostbusters and all that, Wolfgang Peterson, uh, M. Night Shyamalan was also in consideration. This was right after he hit it big with... Uh -huh. um, Sixth Sense, and also ch working with child actors, so that makes sense. Uh, and then uh, a, a, little, a guy named uh, Chris Columbus. So ultimately, it was uh, Chris Columbus's pitch that won, won out and got him the job. Uh, before going into pitch, he took 10 days off and rewrote their entire script as kind of a proof of concept. He was very passionate and wanted to get the job. Um, and he already he also had like you know very highly successful films and family films under his belt, like the two Home Alone films, Mrs. Doubtfire, he, and he also, he had wrote, like, his his first three scripts were Goonies, Gremlins, and Young Sherlock Holmes. Whoa, what the frick? Yeah. So, like... I didn't realize that. He had major pedigree in the family films market. And Young Sherlock Holmes. Like, have you seen this, James? Not yet. Literally watched I watched it, like, a year ago. And there is, there is so much of Harry Potter in it. Well, one, because Harry Potter... Like, Americans would know this, but it's based on a classic... British children's book formula, which is the boarding school adventure. You know, children that go to boarding school and have some kind of mystery adventure there. And so that, that that's what this film was, where, you know, it's um, Watson and young Sherlock. They meet at a school, this very, you know, old classic English, you know, stone, almost castle with a lot of Gothic, Gothic architecture. But just the, the, the style, the tone of the film you know, it, it being set in school, lots of like grand underground sets and, and you know, it, 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 the whole design of it feels a lot like this film. You can see that he, him, his experience with that film, he brought that along and put a lot of it into Harry Potter as well. It's really interesting. Yeah, so the first, the, the four main creative forces with this film would have been Rowling, obviously, as her books, but also she maintained a very high level of control in, you know, with the adaptations. Then you have um, Steve Clovis, the, the author, the, the, the screenwriter, who worked very close with Rowling. And Chris Columbus, obviously, he be the director and a writer himself. They all kind of worked together to make sure it was all, it all, it all came together. And then uh, David Heyman, the producer who, you know, came in with a very strong commitment to doing the book justice and being as faithful as possible. So I think those four, you know, people together are what gave us this film, you know, flaws and all, but like it, it they, 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 they laid out a really great template for the series going forward after this. So when it came time to, uh, to cast the film, obviously, there were a lot of considerations that you had to take into account. Like you're, you're wanting to grow up with these people. And so it was, and they all had to be British. Yes. Yeah. That was another thing. Uh, both Rowling and Columbus uh, maintained this. We like all British cast to the point of, according to their second casting director, Robin Williams would like called asking to play Hagrid and wow. Columbus had to turn him down. That's and, crazy. And, like you, would, yeah, and just imagine the the pressure they would have had from the studio. That's the thing, and so uh, the uh, it's Janet Hersenson is the the second 
casting director. <laughs> because the first one quit because it was so hard. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, she, she said, uh, it was kind of like this hard and fast rule. And then it was really, it was tested whenever like they legitimately had Robin Williams asking to be in it. Columbus turned him down. She said from that po- like moment on, we knew it was never going to happen. Like it, if you're saying no to him, it's, it's going to be a no to everybody just on principle now. Wow. Um, so there was like a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure. Uh, and to talk about that pressure, uh, for the lead of Harry Potter, uh, Columbus had Radcliffe in mind uh, for the role ever since he'd seen him in BBC's production of David Copperfield. And this was just before the casting sessions had started to uh, take place, but he had been told by that at that moment, uh, casting director Susan Figgis, that Radcliffe's uh, parents were very protective and they they didn't want their son taking part in you know this kind of big budget, uh, high profile movie. Um, but Columbus had explained apparently that uh, it was his insistence of all of the things that kind of put the pressure on figures that ultimately led her to eventually step down. So the biggest thing was, was his pressure on, I, I don't care what the parents say, it's going to be Radcliffe. Um, yeah, and, so, and, yeah. And they were, they were testing every single child in Great Britain. Yeah, thousands. And, uh, but anyway, so uh, Radcliffe was asked to audition uh, in the year 2000, when Heyman and Close uh, met him and his parents at a production of Stones in His Pocket in London, they had, there were there were two obstacles they had to overcome to to get Radcliffe. The first one was the the protective parents, and there's a, a quote from Columbus where he said, uh, "We made it very clear that we would protect their son. Um, we knew from the start that Dan was Harry Potter. He had the magic, the inner depth, and darkness that is very rare in an 11 year old. He also has a sense of wisdom and intelligence that I haven't seen in many other kids his age." We knew we made the right choice after sending Joe, referencing uh, Rowling, uh, a copy of his screen test. Her comment was to the effect, I feel as if I've been reunited with my long lost son. And so eventually they were able to convince the parents. However, the, seven, the second obstacle was that Radcliffe didn't initially want the part. Uh, and this is a quote from Hershenson, the, the, the new, the second casting director who stayed along during the entire production after. Uh, she said, he just wasn't interested. He didn't want to be an actor anymore. One evening, uh, one evening, David Heyman, the producer, went to the theater and he knew Daniel's father, who was an agent. So the producer ran into Daniel and his dad and said to Daniel, why don't you come and audition? Just think about it. Eventually said, uh, okay. And uh, yeah, that's eventually how uh, how he joined. Uh, another little screen, uh, a little tidbit is uh, one of the one of the actors who auditioned was old uh william mosley who eventually got cast as peter pevensey in the chronicles of narnia <laughs> so he made his he made his way into these british fantasy movies one way or the other uh for the role of ron weasley uh it went to rupert grant who was a fan of the series at this point he actually sent in uh, well he said he was going to be there's a quote from him where he said he would he knew he'd be perfect for the part because he has ginger hair um that's all you need but yeah that's all you need really uh, having seen a news round report about the open uh, casting for the, they were doing open casting for the three leads. Um, he ended up sending a video of himself dressed as his female teacher, just doing a rap on the spot about <laughs> why they should cast him. Uh, and apparently it made a big impression on them. And it was between him and another actor. They didn't specify who, but um, it was it was just his expressive face that apparently won him the part. Uh, and then for the last of the primary trio, 
the role of Hermione Granger went to Emma Watson. Um, Watson's Oxford theater teacher actually passed her name along to casting agents. Um, she had to do five interviews before eventually getting the part. Um, it was her, uh, the, the casting uh, agent said it was this like ability to be annoying in the moment, but eventually you just kind of like break down. You're like, no, this, this kid's just charming and great. <laughs> in a conversation uh, that J.K. Rowling actually had with Daniel Radcliffe years after the films came out, despite the fact that Watson has kind of defined the, the character for us now, uh, Rowling was a, a bit not hesitant because this was after she had already gotten the part, but she had her reservations initially. Um, there's an, in an interview between her and Radcliffe years after the film's released, uh, she said, you know what, it was really lucky I spoke to Emma first on the phone before I met her because I fell absolutely in love with her. She said to me, I've only ever acted in school drama plays and oh my God, I'm so nervous. I can't believe I got the part. And then she just spoke like that for 60 seconds at least without drawing a breath. And I just said, Emma, you're perfect. Um, and then when I met her and she was this very beautiful, which she still is of course, beautiful girl. I just kind of had to go, oh, okay, it's a film, you know, deal with it. I'm still, or I'm going to still see my gawky, geeky, ugly duckling Hermione in my mind though. <laughs> and then they, they uh, in the interview, they actually talked about how if, if there was anything that, that, if there was any moment in the book that was lessened, because she eventually said later on in that interview, like, what does it matter? Like she, she just personified too many of Hermione's characteristics to, to be too hesitant because of this one thing. They did say, this is relevant to this movie, but uh, to a later one that uh, they felt that the, the, this reveal at the, at the ball, <laughs> Goblet of Fire is, is lessened because I think Radcliffe was just like, oh great, she's a beautiful girl now in a beautiful dress. Like this isn't news. <laughs> you you kind of lose that transformation. Yeah, but she combed her hair. That makes all the difference there you apparently. Go. That's all you need. I mean, it's how you make girls pretty. I can't believe they didn't give her hair. glasses or something. You know, she could take those off and Oh my gosh. I know. Um, so for the rest of the cast, we have John Cleese as nearly headless Nick, uh, Robbie Coltrane as Ruby as Hagrid. Uh, and Coltrane is actually one of two uh, actors that Rowling insisted get the parts, um, the other being Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall. Good choices. Yeah. <laughs> it it took no effort as I was reading through the series, it took no effort like imagining them speaking the lines of the books. I'm like, yeah, this just makes sense. Uh, Warwick Davis as Phileas Flitwick, uh, although he also has two other roles in the film, uh, one being the goblin head teller at Gringotts. Uh, and Grip Hook. Grip Hook, that's right. I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like this for all 10 episodes from now on. <laughs> and yes, dubs the voice of Grip Hook, who is embodied by Vern Troyer though. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. Really? Oh no! Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, Grip, yeah those he, are he plays Griphook, and but he he voices the other guy at the door. Yeah. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know. He, I I recognized his voice. I didn't know he did, wasn't in the wasn't in the costume. But that's interesting. Okay. Uh, Richard Griffiths as Vernon Dursley. Uh, Dursley. Dursley. Sorry, I'm reading. I'm. I've got all these names close together. Uh, Vernon Dursley. <laughs> Uh, Ian McNeese was considered for the role as well, though. And we have uh, Richard Harris cast as uh, Dumbledore. He initially rejected the role, uh, but his granddaughter told him she would never speak to him again if he didn't take the part. How, so, how many of our greatest, like, you know, blockbuster performances are from 
that's, you know, that's exactly actors who are threatened by their children or, or grandchildren. Because obviously, I you know I think of Viggo Mortensen, and to to not stop the Lord of the Rings connection there, uh, an actor who was offered the role was Sean Connery, uh, who also turned down the role of Gandalf. Was he was offered Dumbledore? Um, yes, he was offered Dumbledore. Oh, uh, but turned it down because he disliked the film's subject matter. <laughs> um, Patrick McGowan was also offered the role. Um, however, he was experiencing health issues at the time uh, and had to decline. Ian Hart was cast as Quirinus Quirrell. Ironically enough, David Thewlis actually auditioned for this role. Um, but fortunately, we would still see him despite not landing this part. Um, Hart also voiced Lord Voldemort here. This is before we got old Ralph on. Uh, we also have high-profile actor John Hurt as Mr. Ollivander for the role of Severus Snape. It obviously and famously went to Alan Rickman. Tim Roth was the original choice from uh, hmm. Columbus for the role, but he turned it down for Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Just when you think you have a, like a canon compiled list of all of like the famous oh what a bad decision yeah I, I find out another one like this of oof not only did you lose that part but for that movie <laughs> um fiona shaw got the role of petunia dursley uh obviously maggie smith as mcgonagall um julie waters as molly weasley uh the one <laughs> this is an odd t little bit uh the one american actor who is ever considered for a little bit to the point of like having talks was Rosie O'Donnell uh for the role of Molly Weasley Ooh. uh I mean yeah thank the stars that never happened yeah and I, I guess after you say no to Robin Williams you really get a talks with Rosie O'Donnell what a <laughs> I can't imagine being Williams and finding out I don't understand wow yeah, it's weird um and then for the last, just a rapid fire bit of casting, uh, Zoe Wanamaker uh, was hired as Madame Hooch. Uh, Tom Felton uh, obviously plays Draco Malfoy. Harry Melling uh, plays Dudley Dursley. Uh, David Bradley appears as Argus Filch. Uh, Matthew Lewis and Devin Murray portray Neville Longbottom and Seamus Finnegan, uh, respectively. James and Oliver Phelps play twins, Fred and George Weasley. I imagine that, are, are they actual redheads in real life? Because I imagine yes. that had to be the hardest, like how many redheaded identical twins who can act <laughs> exist in the world, you know, let alone Great Britain. They found them. Uh, Chris Rankin uh, also appears as Percy, the prefect. Get. Yeah. Absolutely. Gosh, I hate that kid. Uh, Bonnie Wright as Ginny. Uh, Sean Biggerstaff as Oliver Wood. Uh, Best accent ever. I freaking love listening to him talk. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, Jamie Whalen and Joshua Herdman uh, play Crab and Goyle, uh, Malfoy's little lackeys. And Leslie Phillips as the voice of the Sorting Hat. Oh, uh, one person probably should mention is uh, Susan Bones is played by Chris Columbus's daughter, Eleanor. She's kind of featured a lot in various shots. Oh, nice. So in order to tempt Warner Brothers to film in the UK, uh, film officials went so far as to 
try and alter the child labor laws to make it a bit more friendly to the production. And they, they did eventually decide to film in the UK. Uh, the film was shot at the Leavesden Film Studios. John Seal served as the director of photography. Uh, he's worked a lot with Peter Weir and George Miller. Uh, he shot a little movie called Mad Max Fury Road. <gasps> um, yes. uh, I was watching an interview and Chris Columbus said that, uh, that Seal, who is Australian, um, and used to filming people with uh, much more who get much more sunlight, he remarked that shooting an entirely British cast was like filming milk bottles with feet. Uh, <laughs> another guy we should mention is our production designer, Stuart Craig. Uh, he's worked on all the Harry Potter films and the two Fantastic Beasts films. Um, you know, he built Hogwarts as, you know, built Hogwarts, built Diagon Alley, like all of the visual cues that we think of instantly when you, is when you think Harry Potter, all these images from these films come into our minds he is responsible for so much of that, um, you know, just at, probably almost as much as, you know, any of the any of the directors or anything. He's like just the visuals he created uh, are just, you know, so iconic and, and um, you know, they'll probably be around in film culture forever. So filming began in September of 2000. Uh, they had to work around the child actors short work days. Uh, according to British law, they could essentially only film four hours like they're they, they had like they could be there like nine hours but they had like schoolwork and lunch and breaks so they could only have four hours of filming each day um so they had to work around that which probably had to be a nightmare also adding to the difficulty was that the vast majority of the kids on this film had either never acted or only done a, like just very little acting before and Columbus said that for the first few weeks, he spent all of his time telling kids, you know, don't look at the camera, keep your heads up, don't smile. <laughs> it's like, and it, it, it's so funny watching the behind the scenes because he's like, he, like he, it's, he's talking so fast, but saying those over and over and over again, like every take, like, look up, you know, Dan, get your head up, Rupert, stop smiling. Like, he's just, it's, it's, it's really fun. Like anyone who's like been around kids, like it's, it had to have been crazy. Like imagine like hurting cats. And just dealing with pretty much non-actor children, they had to really develop a shooting style to work with that. So they would shoot with multiple cameras, often as many as like three or four cameras at once, with pretty with a close-up on each child actor. And Columbus was saying that they could barely ever get a single good take. So essentially, the scenes we see are spliced together from multiple takes, from multiple cameras, you know, cutting like crazy. Oh, that you know that that one sentence is good. That one look is good. You know that little bit. So they had to essentially piece it all together from just you know, a bunch of inexperienced child actors who could barely get through a take, um, without messing it up or something. Uh, just and I think you know Columbus being a family man, you know, he he had four children at the time. I don't know if he has more sense then, but he, you know he had four kids and. Like you watching the behind the scenes, he just seems like the nicest person ever. It's funny, like you know, there are some there are some filmmakers like filmmakers you love, but you don't know if you like hanging out with them, or or they're not that great in an interview. And then there's some directors that I don't even like that much, but I feel like I would love hanging out with them, and they're just so fun to watch talk. And I think Columbus is one of those where he's just he just seems so fun and kind and. Just and that's kind of the, what I hear, um, you know, from all the kids in the crew. Just the way he worked with all of these inexperienced children and wrangled them for a year to get this movie out. Um, it's just that on its own. It's a pretty impressive achievement. Yeah, that's always I, like I watched uh, some of the bits like behind the scenes. It's always a fun thing, <laughs> like just seeing a set that looks fun to be on, like. 
whether it's this or like obviously the Lord of the Rings, I even I remember watching any of the behind the scenes I could find on like the Narnia movies and the way they would joke with um, Andrew. Uh, I can't remember the director's name. Adamson. Andrew something. Andrew Adamson. And like it looked like they just everybody just gets along so well on the set. I'm like, ah, that looks like a fun place to be. Makes me feel good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's also like is they kind of stressful like oh there's like 50 children running at me uh but yeah like even if you like kids that feels like it could be a bit you know, a bit much but uh you know he he took it on like a champ and uh we got a good movie um there were at first there were a couple attempts to to make uh the kids look more like their book counterparts such as putting a uh, green contact lenses on radcliffe or fake front teeth on emma watson uh but they were quickly abandoned um like you the first, like the, pretty much just the first day, like there's a couple shots where you can see like, oh, he has green eyes or Emma Watson has like larger teeth, but they, they eventually, they pretty quickly um dropped that. Uh, for the, the film score, man, if we're talking about people who also need to be thanked for just the the identity of this series as a whole, uh, we obviously have to talk about John Williams. Um, he composed the score initially at his home in Los Angeles, uh, and, uh, and entangled before recording it uh, in London uh, during September of 2001. Uh, so he had he had written a lot of material for it, and the the reason he he, he named one of them uh, Hedwig's theme, and he he said he he made sure to hold on to that one because everyone seemed to like it. Was his <laughs> quote. Um, and it's it's a funny story how his and Columbus's relationship started. Williams is very choosy about who he works with. And it goes back to Home Alone when they made that film and there were it came time to pick a composer. Columbus said he just kind of threw out like the best name he could think of. Like, what if we got John Williams kind of jokingly? But they but they approached him and he actually loved the script. And so, you know, he's done I think I think four or five of Columbus's films since then. Nice. That's cool. What's funny is he Williams wasn't actually the first choice here. James Horner was the initial choice, but uh he ended up turning it down. Um Man, what a what a crazy thing when when John Williams is your second choice to score your film. Uh, but man, I I can't help but think that the film the the series is what it is today, partly because of that. Like, man, you can't really find a more iconic. Yeah, just a few notes. It's just such a like a perfect storm of creatives coming together. Yeah, uh, for the film's release, uh, it released as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone everywhere except for North America and India, actually. But it had its world premiere at uh, Odeon at Leicester Square in London on November 4th, 2001. Uh, it's actually cool. They they arranged the cinema to kind of resemble Hogwarts. And then it had its worldwide release on November 16th, 2001. All right. Um, so I'm going to get into my history with the series soon. But first, James, uh, what, what is your history with the the, the Harry Potter series at large and this film in particular? Uh, so as a kid growing up, I, I grew up watching Disney Channel religiously. And I, I don't know if it's a rights thing or because I, I know nothing about the distribution rights of the series. The the first two, uh, both the Sorcerer's Stone and the Chamber of Secrets came on like 30 times every October on Disney Channel. <laughs> but it, it was only those. I, I'm assuming it's just because they're, you know, the PG and they're the more kid friendly. Alfonso Cuaron, you know, that regular on the Disney Channel. Yeah, you know, all the kids love them. 
um, can't get him to shut up about Roma. But anyways, uh, so growing up, those were always coming on year after year. They'd come on just nonstop during that whole month. And I loved them. And so I, I watched them. Actually, well, to go back even before that, I was one of the kids who was not allowed to watch Harry Potter at first. Um, and I have three older siblings, and they were just old enough to be able to watch it where my mom be like, I guess watch it if you want. Um, but then you, they eventually just were able to talk her to be like, no, it's, 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 it's really nothing. And my mom was like, okay, cool, whatever. And she was kind of persuaded out of, out of uh, the whole Harry Potter is not for our children camp. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, <laughs> but uh, so a couple of years later, I'm probably around 12 or 13. Uh, whenever, like, it's just, it's coming on all the time. And so I watched Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets a lot but I never got past those two because I I just I watched them when they came on TV. Huh. Uh, and so Harry Potter for the longest time were those two movies I watched a lot. Um, I, and then I, I watched um, Prisoner of Azkaban several years later and really, really loved it. But I, I never watched anything beyond that for the longest time. And then uh, I, I ended a, a Breaking Bad binge and i needed you to watch it so what is a now famous barter and and chats we're in um i told you that if you would finish breaking bad the the series i would read the entire harry potter series uh and you got through breaking bad pretty quickly and it took me like four (laughs) years to read the books um but not for lack of enjoying them uh because i i really really did love them and the reason that we're actually doing the the film series now is because this year I, I finished uh, The Deathly Hallows and I really, really loved the series. And so as soon as I was done, literally that same night, I called one of my friends who lives here in Converse just saying like, hey, I know you've been wanting to watch this. I just finished the book. You want to come over and watch Sorcerer's Stone? And so over the course of a week, from weekend to weekend, uh, we watched uh, the the Harry Potter series. And uh, that was, that was my that first finish through. So. I've, I've only seen, I've seen uh, Prisoner of Azkaban twice now, technically, but everything after that, I've just seen once during that binge. So I'm excited for a, for a rewatch now. Yeah. So I, I did not grow up watching or reading or watching the series. I did grow up in one of the, you know, the conservative Christian families, you know, Harry Potter is evil, um, you know, witchcraft, all that, you know, abomination all that, all that kind of stuff uh so it was it was very very strictly banned growing up uh so f- flash forward to i was either like 19 or 20 i you know i had my own i was working almost full time and i was like you know i'm i'm, I'm a grown-up i'm gonna you know, i'm gonna get you know get it get it from the library and listen to the audiobook in my car on my commutes to work you know I'm not going to bring it home, <laughs> but i'll do that so i did that i, I listened to the to them uh on my commutes to work and i fell head over heels in love with the series and just became obsessed with it and i i watched like as i would listen to each book i would watch the films like on my i had this little you know seven inch personal dvd player thing i would like i would you know watch it in my car just to keep it <laughs> to hide it from, from my parents um it was it was a, it was a very fun very stressful time uh <laughs> eventually it did get found out it was a whole big to do um but yeah so it was uh, kind of like a very secret thing I did, but I still fell very much in love with it. And you know, since moving out and all and whatnot, I've, you know, only I've, I've 
read the series probably four or five times through. I actually, I started listening to the series again when you finished the books, like, a couple of months back and I, yeah. And, and I, I listened to like six books in a row. I was like, Oh, I, I better stop. And so I, I'm, I'm on, um, half blood prince. Now I'm going to start it again. Now that we're finally starting on the podcast so I can listen to them alongside it. Um, as far as the films, I watched each film as I read the books and I, I, I love them all. Um, I think there's kind of a, we're going to get into my overall philosophy of how I view the films, but I think overall they're minus one, uh, a fourth film that shall remain unnamed. I, I love them all, and they all hold a very special place in my heart. Uh, now, on to Sorcerer's Stone in particular. Ah, uh, wow. That was a very, very long preamble. Uh, so here we are to the film, James. What do you think about this film in particular? Uh, so this film in particular. Uh, I really like it. You know, it's it's not perfect, but I don't know. I, I, there's There's just a vibe to it that's fun like it's it's just a fun movie to exist in um and like so i, I can give caveats and be like well xyz doesn't work and you know we're i mean we're gonna this is a review so we're gonna get into all that but just my overall thoughts if you just say hey what do you think about sorcerer's stone i'm like it's a fun movie like for as long as it is if you throw it on it's just such an easy breezy watch for me like it's 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 a good time to just to sit in front of. So I, I think it's, I think it's really fun. And it's, if anything, it's a world that is great to be in. And, and, and because of the world, because the world changes as the series goes on and things get darker and the, you know, the threat is more ever present. There's something just kind of, relieving and chill about this one it's like you know let's let's just go to class without having to worry about anything let's just let's walk around these halls i kind of want to do that without being like hey because it, it it takes a long time in this movie for like the threat to even like be whispered and so we could talk about the length and all that but i'm kind of down to just uh, yeah we're just chilling this is a good time there are this is, this is going to be difficult because there's so many angles to talk about this because you know, we've talked about book adaptations that I've read before, but m most of the time I kind of just push the book to the side and pay attention to the film. But it's Harry Potter. <laughs> the, the, the books hold such a dear place in my heart. And I think first and foremost, I will always be a book fan for this series, which is generally not the case. Usually I'm a movie fan first and foremost. And I think it gets into kind of the question of adaptation. And I don't, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. Uh, for me, I view these films may, with exceptions with certain chapters, and we'll talk about the specific chapters when we get there. But overall, I think these films work best as companion pieces. I think the issue, particularly as they got longer and longer, was that there was just so much material to cram into them. And I think that could be a bit of a problem here. It, it almost feels like there's sort of highlight reels. Like we're just, tr we're just flashing to the big, uh, all the big events and sometimes little plot points and the connective tissue fell through the cracks. And so we get films that are pretty faithful and very fun, but also I don't, I don't, I don't know how much they could mean to someone who hasn't read the books. Like I like looking at say like Lord of the Rings, 
I, I believe those films stand 100% on the road. You could never read the books and they could still be the best films of all time. I don't know that's the case with Harry Potter. I feel like there's... There, there, there's something in the way that they hew so closely to the books, it could, it could be a negative to where there are so many elements in the films that you only connect to if you've read the books and you know what they mean. Does that affect you at all? Uh, it does for the later ones. I, I really, I felt it the most uh, starting with Goblet of Fire, mm-hmm. but which incidentally, you know, is when the series gets incredibly like doubles its length at least in in pages. In this one, I, I, I was kind of, so whenever I first read The Sorcerer's Stone, like four years ago now, I did, I watched the movie back to back. Um, and what felt like kind of a, a incredible to me was, aside from some scene changes, it almost felt like the shooting script for the movie was just the book. Like, it is probably the most, faithful in terms of just a direct translation of events from the book onto the screen. It's probably the most faithful adaptation I've ever seen. Uh, Yeah. Stuff is trimmed, but almost all the lines are either transcribed or kind of a, of a paraphrase. Pretty much every scene has a corollary in the book. It's, it's crazy. And so it, it it doesn't feel companiony to me because it's, there's, there's very little left out. And this is also before like Harry as a character who's really maturing. And so at, at later points, you know, a lot of his inner dialogue becomes very important. Um, but at this point, most of his inner dialogue is just him and his sense of wonder, which we kind of, you know, we, we you can also just get that in a physical performance. And so I, I think these first three you could just, you could have told me, hey, there's no books, it's just these three movies. And I'd be like, okay, but going, especially between The Goblet of Fire and The Order of the Phoenix are the two ones to me more than any where I'm like, you definitely feel like there's more around every corner that we just didn't really get to feel out. Um, but yeah, so so for this one, I'm, I'm like, oh, it just, it feels like a movie. I have more to say about that, but I, that leans more into my issues with the film. So, I, But I do want to talk about positives because there is so much that happens here. Uh, just talking about the style that Chris Columbus brings. And it's interesting, like watching this film and um, Chamber of Secrets, if you asked me when they had been made and I didn't see the CGI moments, I would have said like 80s, early 90s. He, there's a very classical yeah. grounded feeling he brings to these movies um which is funny because I, I don't think he has transitioned well as a director at all into the 2000s um like you compare this to his work on on uh percy jackson it's like what happened to you um and there are some directors it's fine i think like uh what's the guy that made uh the mummy films oh who is he S- stephen summers like with that first film, it's it's so classical and fun and old fashioned, and then he makes films like GI Joe, which are just, like, just CGI blobs and they look horrible. It's like, like some directors I don't think transitioned well into the age of CGI, um, and I think Columbus is one of them. But at this point in his career, he has such a grounded classical style, and he said he and he talks about he was trying to make this movie timeless, like where if you're watching it, you would you wouldn't exactly know where it was ma- made. And I think the CGI is where he fails at that, but everywhere else, 
Um, like it does feel like you're watching a movie from the eighties or something and not in the bad eighties way, but just from like the, 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 the tangibility and how tactile it all is and how just simple and basic the camera work is in a, in a, in a good way. Yeah. Um, and it's just, and I think that it's, it really set the tone to, to make, um, to make Hogwarts and the wizarding world feel real. Like, I think if you had, if you had started with Alfonso Cuaron or David Yates, and I, I adore the visual styles, but I, but they're, they're very fantastical. And I think if you had started that, I don't, I don't think our impression of the wizarding world would have been so tangible. Like, I don't know if you would have Diagon Alley at Universal Studios as a place if you had started with Cordon or Yates. Um, I think this very down-to-earth, grounded, where you just, you feel the grit, you feel the dirt, you feel these ancient buildings. I think that style, which is, in many ways, just a lack of style. It, it, it made this world so real, like you could step into it. I think it's, it's such a big part in why this series has endured. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just about like the the feeling of it like like this kind of timeless or 80s feel um it's one and the same baby <laughs> exactly <laughs> it is funny that we're using timeless and a definitive point in time interchangeably but okay like uh like like uh steel Spielberg's direction in indiana jones of the last crusade it's in the 80s but it doesn't feel 80s you know yeah not 80s as far as all the, the styles and all that stuff yeah you're right it, it definitely it's that like we know when it was made but there was just a style at that point in time that did feel timeless so 80s is whenever timelessness was created um but it has that feel like there's just something in like the the earnestness and how it presents these kids and like we have extended scenes of dialogue with just just three kids sitting around with each other talking to each other and it's and it just lets that happen for a long time you know we just we get to it doesn't because it's you know some would argue overly patient with uh how it introduces conflict it really it's it it's very confident in in this world and in these kids and everything and and so we just we get to it doesn't feel the need to be like and here's our adult character that we're going to kind of tag along with it's no we, we we're we're a kids we're a fun kids adventure movie and it yeah it you you feel the the goonies thing makes sense now thinking about it it's just i don't know i don't know what all i can add without rambling but yeah but just the the world that that columbus and his crew craig and and all those people they put together is it's just incredible like the the great hall that shot where you open up and the floating candles and this gorgeous set um or or diagon alley um just there's the the quidditch pitch just the design of this world is so perfect it's just it's just a wonderful time just a place to spend time in i I, you you talked about the way it, it really allows us to spend time with the kids i think theoretically that is a good thing and i want to get your take on this how do you feel about the child acting in this movie? So I know you have an issue with it. <laughs> I I don't know if it's just if it's pure charm overcoming any ability I have to like discern like quality. But I, I find them so likable and charming and fun that I, I have no issue. 
is spending time. Like all of the weird, dumb, goofy faces Ron makes, <laughs> like all of the airy confidence of Hermione and Oliver, like, you, I mean, the classic Leviosa line now, like it's, or, or Daniel Radcliffe just, you know, really hearing in the, I'm a what? It's, <laughs> it's just, it, I have a really fun time with them. And so I don't know if I'm necessarily stepping up to bat uh, in, in defense of their acting. All I can say is I, I don't feel like it hinders my enjoyment. I just, I have a good time with them. This might be something where my age coming to it affects it. Cause I, I don't have any of these problems with um, Chamber of Secrets, but like, I, I think I'm right. I think I'm fairly right and not too harsh and say that. I don't think any of the kids can particularly act. There are moments in this film where like, oh, that glance from Emma Watson, that was like, that was a really good good performance or a line reading. <laughs> the way when she meets, you know, I'm Ron Weasley, pleasure. <laughs> um, like there are moments of new flashes, but overall, I don't think they're really acting. I think they're just kind of saying their lines with lots of exuberance, which is kind of what you need in a kid actor at this point when they don't, you know, they don't know how to act. Like if they can't act, at least they're exuberant. Uh, and so it kind of works. Also, sometimes that's just how kids are, man. Yeah. Sometimes kids just talk to you like they're weirdly reading lines. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like it, it, it works. It's not irritating or annoying. It's like it's it's charming in that way. But for me, that is the lack of acting. It does affect my engagement. Like I'm not really emotionally engaged in, uh, as outside of like one or two scenes, which usually involve an adult, you know, Richard Harris in particular. I'm not all that emotionally engaged. Like, I, they're, they're adorable. I'm charmed. I'm engaged scene to scene, but like as a narrative, as a story, as character arcs, I don't. I can't really get into this film as much. I think p partially because of the acting. Um, and the funny thing is, despite the fact that I don't think any of them can act in this film, it's some, there's something incredible about the casting. Is as in how many of these child actors went on to have careers as adults. You know, you have your, not just, you know, Radcliffe, Grint, and Emma Watson. They're, they're still all acting, and they're still doing pretty well. Like, Harry Melling, who plays uh, uh, Dudley, or uh, Tom Felton, who plays a Drake, like, they, they, they're still acting. And and that feels like a pretty good accomplishment to have like, you know, at least five of your child actors grow up to be accomplished um, adult actors, even though none of them can actually act here. I'm like, it's like the casting directors, they, they, they saw something in them that was able to uh to evolve and it's funny like watching this time i could really notice uh, like oh that scene was filmed at the end of the schedule and that scene was definitely filmed at the beginning like you can kind of tell sometimes their ages fluctuate um huh. also the like, the quality of the performances as well like you can tell with, with the scenes that were shot towards the beginning towards the end just because <laughs> because they're, they're children it was shot over like 11 months i think so they they, they grew quite a bit yeah, and then, and I think I think talking about the my issue of the lack of connectivity I have with this film, I also I think that the pacing is the pacing and everything I think is kind of bad, and and not just the moment to moment stuff, which I I think like I understand like the 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 directorial style had to be adapted to child actors, all of that, but I think the transitions from scene to scene are not good, they're really jarring, um like. This 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 movie feels like a a film of scenes, where this is this scene. This is this. Every this is, movie is a film of scenes, Gabe. Yeah, like this is the Transfiguration class. Hard cut. 
Now we're in the Forbidden Forest. Hard it's cut. Definitely now it's Quidditch. Hard cut. And it, it is, it's more than just transitions. It's like they'll have a, a touching moment and swells of music that just, bam, it's over. And we're in the next scene with a of totally course, different because tone. because now we have to be in Potions game. Yeah, but it, it's like even the sound design, like they don't fade out the sound into the next scene. It's like it's like hard chops. And so like, there's like there's like probably about 10 or 12 scenes that are so, just like, we're in an emotion, we're in, a, we're in a, you know, a feeling, and oh, it's so sweet, and bang! Now you're somewhere else, a totally different tone. Gabe, we're somewhere else. <laughs> and, and, and it, it's, 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 it is kind of difficult for me to, to you get invested into this film as a narrative, because like, the the, the, chi- the child actor's not great, and I feel like there's, there's something, I think that's the problem with trying to adapt, you know, adapt the book so faithfully, is that they wanted to put it in all the scenes, whereas I almost feel like it would have been more more faithful to the feeling of reading the book if they had trimmed it down a bit and allowed for a, you know, a smoother narrative um, to, 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 to just allow us to flow better rather than just slamming us into each scene individually. Uh, did, did you notice that at all? I, I, I feel like you, you see not, not be sharing many of my problems with it. Well, I, so I was literally about to say, I don't know if I just like turned the critic part of my brain off for this because I'm just, it's just such a fun time to me uh I, I, there's there's definitely moments that that you're bringing up with like the you you feel like the film is being overly segmented like it's this the scene themselves like it's this is this is the potion scene and there's no tissue scene between the potion scene and the whatever meal scene or you know and whatever scenes are connected to each other it is just, it, it's it's like it's broken up like chapters. And when you end the chapter, there's a sense of finality there that that books as a, a medium offers you. And then the next chapter, it can just, it can start off however it wants to, you know. Um, but with a movie, because there is, there's no page turn, there is no like, oh, well, that's that's enough for tonight, I'm done and I'll pick it up tomorrow. Like it is, it's, it's got a flow. And so yeah, the, the, be, there's there's they didn't really find any ways to have these nice little connective tissue moments between everything what once once they did and like you know the transitions that alfonso Cuarón is you know, kind of famous <laughs> for in that film columbus actually created them like the scene after the uh the maravera said where harry goes out with the owl with a headwig and he flies up and flies around the sky and we come back at summer like columbus created that and the uh, Quran took it and ran yeah. with it but Quran i made it look cooler than anything anybody but, but it works really well in this movie it eases us from a really emotional scene you know into the rest of the narrative it's like you know we had an emotional scene with erised and now we you know we could kind of ease out of that and go to the next scene like this film needed a bit more of that i think you know that kind of easing us in and i i really do like this movie but i Uh kind of want to roll because this is connected to my lack of connectivity is that the structure of this film is so weird like it's like we have like an hour and a half of just oh you know introduction to the you know to the wizarding world to you know to uh, Diagon Alley to Gringotts to Hogwarts to classes to the Forbidden Forest. Oh my gosh, Voldemort's coming back! Like in the last twenty minutes of the film, <laughs> it's yep. the, the, the the threat is kind of funny because like we get the first glimpse of the Sorcerer's Stone and Gringotts at like twenty four minutes in, and then the Gringotts break it is mentioned at fifty three minutes in. Then we meet Fluffy at like an hour and three minutes, um, and we, and we finally learn about the Sorcerer's Stone, like what it is, at uh, the hour and forty minute mark. 
Like that's when we actually learn about the MacGuffin. Hour and forty minutes in. Well, other it's movies have ended now. Yeah. So it, it, it's there's really the the plot is very much an afterthought. This, which is kind of kind of what the book is, but the book's a book. <laughs> and I feel like now, I, and I'm not saying I wish it was all plot, but the fact that they introduce you know the Sorcerer's Stone at Green Guts, I feel like they could have taken all the backloaded investigation and kind of folded it over a bit more and woven you know woven the investigation scenes into the classes which is how which is pretty much how rolling does it like all these conversations are you know part of the investigation and like we're in the class and mcgonald was teaching transfiguration but they're in the back whispering about oh we saw snape do this thing so i feel like they could have folded it back into the narrative a bit more uh smoothly rather than sticking so closely to the book's structure um so it's just it's a lot of little things your know, child actors very segmented pacing and a narrative that doesn't really engage until the end that, that even though i'm i'm so deeply charmed by this movie i i don't connect to it's not like one of those movies where i watch and i'm like completely emotionally engrossed the whole time i kind of like i have to come in and re re re-engage myself at each scene which is fine because most of the scenes are wonderful but it doesn't engage me as a narrative that much yeah, and, and I think that part of that is definitely on some of the issues that you brought up. But I also wonder how, in like, even in the book, there's not a map. Like, I don't see, even best case scenario, this, I don't know how emotionally invested. Because there's not really a, a, a super strong emotional center outside of some of the stuff with the parents. But this problem the narrative problem becomes more obvious if you do like a double feature between it and chamber of secrets uh because they're both of those films are so similar in so many ways and so where there are differences they feel more obvious than there might like than they might feel in a comparison of other movies uh and one of that is like the narrative which i think is folded in like the the conflict and everything and intrigue is folded much more into the moment to moment of Chamber of Secrets than it is. Dude, in, uh, if you can uh, be started on Chamber of Secrets, we're, we're never well, going to talk, talk about, about it. So it's your stone. So uh, just, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's definitely an issue, especially whenever you watch that and you're like, okay, I don't even know if I would have put that into where, at least for myself, because it's what I thought this last time I watched them both, um, or what I thought whenever I did the, mar- uh, the, the binge was, I didn't even realize I had this criticism of one until I, or of a of Sorcerer's Stone until we finished Chamber of Secrets. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're kind of clicked in, you zoned in, zoomed in on this, this mystery throughout in a way that you're not. And, you know, a lot of that is because the exposition is out of the way because Sorcerer's Stone would have had to have folded this conflict into a lot of this introductory stuff. Like it, it carried a burden that Chamber of Secrets doesn't. So, and Chamber of Secrets completely... is such a beautiful mystery book. Yeah, it's it, like perfect. It lends itself the ability to kind of like weave it all in a little bit more. Um, so, with all all that being said, though, I still I just I'm also just a big fan of introductions. I get so, I get livid when people <clears throat> complain about origin, like superhero origin movies. I'm like, no, that True. I love origins so much. And so just whenever we see the castle for the first time, oh. our very first potions class, our very first, 
you know, time on the ground. It's like just all of these moments as, as disconnected as they may be, as whatever, as sloggily paced as they may be. I just, whenever, you know, we're out there trying to get our brooms up the first, like, and she, you know, she, they're, they have their first, their first like game of course, just because it's the first of everything. I just, I go along with it with, with my complaints usually following after the credits roll, because like in the moment, I'm not thinking about jarring transitions or, or, you know, a kind of a slogging pace. I'm just like, oh, this is the first time they did that. This is fun. This is the <laughs> first time they did that. This is fun. And it's got such a jolly vibe. I don't know. I, it's, it really is hard for me to be a, a critic in the moment with this because I am just kind of having fun with it. Yeah. And, uh, but back to Columbus's side a little bit. It's something kind of funny that happens. I feel like he, he, like he said, he's so constrained whenever, you know, dealing with these child actions and how limiting that has to be to the filmmaking. Did you notice that the basically every single establishing shot is like this, this elaborate crane way up in the sky, swooping into the, like swooping in these huge cast movements. Like he, he'll open every scene with this huge crane shot. And then it's like really static close-ups for the rest of the scene. And then you have a big crane out. It's, it's kind of funny. Like how many times he uses that, just these glorious sweeping crane shots. And then for how bland the rest of the film is, is in the filming. I didn't, I didn't pick it up a lot on that. I did notice just, I mean, because the CGI calls attention to itself, just the difference between the actual kids and whenever he goes fully CGI, like <laughs> whenever he's using CGI body doubles, it's never just kind of like a shrug of the shoulders or like they look around. It's like all the movement is so exaggerated. <laughs> Everything is so rigid. And even to the, like down to the camera work. I mean, you're, a, a lot of the cases, most of the cases you're flying around on broom. So it kind of naturally calls for cameras that weaving in and out and stuff, but it it felt like okay we're we're real kids we're on the ground we're we're putting this and then as soon as he gets body doubles or CGI body doubles they're like flailing their arms about the cameras like yeah let's let's talk about the rubber people <laughs> it's so bad it's and, and, and often it's stuff like you could do with throwing a kid on wires like that Quidditch scene um. There, he gets so much right. The, just the look of the feet, the Quidditch pitch, the stands, the you know, the, the uh, Quidditch robes, the way the game is played, like the way it looks being played is right. But oh my gosh, the CGI is not there yet. And we, there are so many times where it's just these rubber people, and you and you get glimpses of their faces, and it's like. <laughs> sometimes that's not even glimpses there's sometimes where it's like you shot this and framed this way more confident than you should have been <laughs> and like I, he he had it in him because we get to chamber of secrets and that quidditch scene is glorious and he he talks about he's open like this is his like this his biggest regret with this film is that they they rushed the quidditch scene i think he, he said they only like two months for the effects um it's so like he's aware of it but <laughs> he still did it and it's not just this scene like the, the um the troll well the troll is just badly designed number one and two the animation is terrible and when you have the terrible troll and the terrible hairy cgi puppet on top of him it's like it's, it's not great it's not great it's sort of like most uh christian households that were you know being told that harry potter was wrong lord of the rings is obviously a-okay um obviously <laughs> 
you know, you've got to say a yes. Um, and so because Lord of the Rings was something I could watch and Harry Potter was something I couldn't, and like whenever I was at Walmart or Toys R Us or whatever, and I saw the toy for the troll from Sorcerer's Stone, I'm like, well, I don't even want to watch it because the troll from Lord of the Rings is so much cooler. <laughs> but seriously, it's the same year. I, I, that's the thing. Even though, like, I bring that up as a, bring that up as a joke. I mean, that's just inarguable. <laughs> like, the the troll here, I, I guess, I mean, they're going for goofy kids fantasy, but I really wish they weren't because, you know, we have a, we've got a weird, creepy man's head on the back of another man's head and, like, cloaked figures drinking the blood from a dead unicorn. Like, you don't have to be, you don't have to be Infants there. being murdered or almost, or attempted murdered. Yeah. You know, you've, you've given yourself the out to to give us a real cool troll. But yeah, it's just on on paper, like he said yes to so many incredible production notes. <laughs> I, I, he just had to get one wrong, I guess. Cause like, yeah, just the, the, the design of the troll, I really hate a lot. Um, and then it is only exacerbated by that just truly awful CGI. That said, the whatever practical effects they used to almost kill uh, Emma Watson with those bathroom stalls exploding, it's really good. <laughs> That's cool, though. Yeah, it's funny. I think I think you can see the seeds of why Chris Columbus went wrong in the CGI era because of just how gleefully he uses it here, with no regard as to whether it should be used or even can be used in this regard, uh, in in this, in this situation. Um, um, but go, going back to what you were talking about, like th this film, ha wh whether or not it has a strong emotional core, I think there is a good, there's a really sweet story being told here about Harry Potter, you know, and as a character, his journey from, you know, being horribly abused and unwanted to, you know, finding a home and finding a family. And I think the, the, the most touching moments of this film are definitely involved that somehow. Um, Especially the scene of he and Dumbledore. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, absolutely. But there, there, there are other little moments, like after he gets to Hogwarts, and you know, uh, th again, speaking of those quiet little transition scenes that would have, we needed more of, um, after the feast, and they're up, they go up to the dormitory, and there's this lovely shot where we kind of go through the the, the boys' dormitory, and we see all the ki kids sleep, and he's just kind of curled up, looking out the window with this little smile on his face, um, like he's he's finally found a home. Um, and it's just the sweetest thing. And let's talk about uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Like, the kid looks like Harry Potter. And yes, I know he defined Harry Potter, but still, like, even if you had never seen the movies, I feel like if you saw him, you would say, yes, that's Harry Potter. It's, yeah. it's so, it's so good. Like, he, and he also, like, he has, like, his really striking eyes and, like, a really good stare. Um, so, like, I, I, like, so even though he can act, like, when he's just quiet and looking, like I, I believe things are happening behind those eyes, deep, you know, deep soulful things. And he, he has that general precociousness, you know, you need for a child actor. And just getting, this is getting into the themes of the books, but it's the idea of like this child who is completely unwanted, you know, finding a place where he belongs. It's, it's, it's like one of the most elemental human stories. Just we want to belong. And, we go with this this bullied child to finding a place in you know, a place that he it, it's, it's not easy for him like the wizarding world is horrible to him and like he pretty much di nearly dies every single year but it's still it's a place he can fit in and he can where he can excel and it's just it's, that's just that's just a lovely story on its own um and then we get to this, this the mirror of erised scene and 
again, like, this is where I think um, Columbus's minimalist style works so well. Because that scene, it's so simple and so understated. And there's, I think there's no dialogue, which helps the child actors. It's just, it's just, it's made up of like looks and quiet, just quiet, you know, re reaction shots. And it's so, it's beautifully lit too. The, the blue lighting, the moonlight coming in and just, just the image of a child without parents suddenly seeing, you know, his mother and father smiling at him. And just the moment where his mother lays her hand on his shoulder and he just kind of reaches up and oh, dude, like I don't, I, I could be so cynical about how you know how you know sloppy this movie is sometimes, but just this one scene on its own just kind of breaks me. And whenever, uh, whenever Dumbledore comes in, I, there's, I, I know that you're gonna have a lot of thoughts uh, on just the the differences between Richard Harris and Michael Gambon and what they were both like the different aspects of Dumbledore from the books that they were both able to really embody. But this grandfatherly gentleness that Harris is able to capture is like, I don't know. You just, you want, you want to go to bed, like listening to him read you a story, you know? Yeah. There's just something so. The, 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 just the patience and kindness that this, the character had is so perfectly embodied. Yeah, like it just it it feels like if he's at ease and he's explaining something to you, then then there all is right. You know, there's 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 goodness in this in this scene in this world. And the the lines they're pretty much word for word from the book. You know, the happiest man on earth can look in the mirror and would only see himself exactly as he is. Or the other line, you know, the mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Mm. It's a lovely scene. And we get that, that Hedwig transition I mentioned before to kind of ease us out of it and, and you just exist in that, you know, that emotion, um, which is picked up at the end, um, which is actually funny. The first scene they shot was the scene on the platform leaving Hogwarts. And you have a Hagrid giving him the book with the pictures of his parents. And again, you know, you know I'm, I'm not going home. Not really. It's like, oh yeah, that, 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 this this movie was about that, and it hits you again. Uh, and it's, it, one thing's funny: um, Columbus was talking about how, it, like, it, it looks like Harry is on the verge of tears because his eyes are all red and puffy, but that was actually because his the uh, green contact lenses he was allergic to them, so his eyes were all red and puffy. So it looks like good acting, but apparently it was just allergic reaction. Well, break. Yeah, it works because like he like, he looks like he's legitimately moved. It's, it's it's it only shows up in like four scenes or <laughs> four or five scenes one is really powerful and the rest are kind of touching as well so you you, st you still come away with it even though it's, it's not all that well integrated into the story yeah and it also feels like I don't know my my maybe my biggest issue with this is it feels like we're having a pretty pretty chill time for like well over an hour and then we're just like it's this really compacted 20 minutes of like, well, now it's the last act and we're doing X, Y, Z and bada boom, bada bing. Two hours with this movie. Yeah. So like we, we get there after spending so much time just with this very kind of relaxed attitude. And then it's last act. We're, we're, we're doing chess. We're doing this, we're doing that. And I've got this stone. Don't you knock the chess. 
Oh, I'm not. Although, <laughs> well, I really wish. I'm not a big fan of, of the way that scene is shot. Um, but it, it it really does feel like we just kind of we start doing all this and that, and then afterwards we get you know the explanation of of how he survived. And, oh yeah, and, I, for, I forgot that scene. It's also kind of important. Yeah, uh, and so it just it feels like that scene is kind of well we just all all of the the conflict that we could have been integrating the this kind of emotional narrative into like we got done like the last 15 minutes after two hours of just chilling out uh here's a reminder of what this was all about yeah about that scene well also this is the christmas scene which again molly weasley she saw this poor boy he wasn't gonna eat presents so she went made him a weasley sweater and said it was a present you've got one too yeah it's so good um but then that final scene where um dumbledore explains uh uh, just about the spell uh it's not as well explained as it is in the book i feel like they kind of they condensed it down a bit too much i could have done with a couple more lines about what exactly happened to him but still richard harris is just so good at exposition it's so weird for somebody who's usually just like so easily manipulated i had the same issue with the explanation both the book and the movie uh you are a heartless monster and i hate you (laughs) it it just in a weird way like just as a joke the way i criticize that now is to just do the interstellar it was love harry it was love tars it was love not even gonna dignify any of that with the response it seemed the book broke me. <laughs> it, it just it raised logistical issues for me. But it fits like, so how, perfectly into Harry's character arc. You know, uh, he, he's does, missing but a man, family, but his mother's love is what saved him, has protected him. And shouldn't there be like tons of people? <laughs> maybe not tons, but certainly he's not the only person in the world. I mean, how many people get murdered twice by the same person? Who, no, who, also, mean, just, who also killed their parents. <laughs> no, I just mean how many, like, surely somebody has sacrificed themselves. And that's, that, that was, that was primarily it, you know, like it, it was this, this sacrificing, like putting, you know, stepping in front of it, sacrificing ourselves for him is what put the spell on him. I'm like, surely that, that has happened to other people. I mean, I guess the wizarding world is kind of violent, so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like there's, there's people dying. Well, it's, it's, pro- it's, it's probably happened, but it's just this was Baltimore. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, let's just run through the cast. There's uh, Emma Watson. Um, like this girl was born to be Hermione. And you listen to the interviews, like, uh, like uh, Harry uh, or Dan and uh, Rupert are kind of like they're distracted. They're joking with each other, poking each other, kind of, you know give these half sentences and then you go to cut to Emma Watson and she's like sitting perfectly straight speaking these like beautifully beautifully constructed sentences like very intelligent and perceptive like she's she literally is Hermione and like she she just completely embodies that like she's like, like very articulate and intense and ha- as you said you know, has that you know, slightly annoying quality you got dirt on your nose did you know did you know that <laughs> But then you you pair it with Rupert Grint, who has the world's best reaction faces. (laughs) 
And like it doesn't it doesn't matter if they can act, like they have that down. Like just their own personalities work so well together. That that's like they're for whatever criticisms valid as they may like may be, their chemistry is just so incredible. Like hair, like their first whenever Harry and Ron meet on the train, like that scene's magic. That scene is just it's so fun, you know, like showing him the cards and the chocolate frog and, you know, I'll take the lot. It's just, uh, it's a, they, they seem, it, it feels like I just watched a couple of kids become friends. I don't know. Like, it, yeah, there's something natural to the way they interact with each other. Got it for a bit of light reading. This is light. That little glare she gives him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah and just Rupert Grint, he has a face, an amazing face. That was built for the movies, uh, and just and like I, I, there's a criticism uh, levied against the film, the films that they kind of turned Ron into comedic relief and didn't take him seriously. I partially agree with that. I think Ron is more comedic relief than either other than the other two characters. Um, and also, like you have a trio, each a film trio, they have the roles. You know, Harry, Harry's the heart, um, Hermione's the brain, and Ron is. Yeah, the, the comedic relief character, but it makes sense that they made him the comedic relief because his face is so good. Like you, you can just cut to him at any moment, and he's giving you the reaction shot you need. It's it's so great, and oh, he he's still really good. Uh, I I just watched the uh, the series uh, Servant, the M Night Shyamalan Apple TV series, and he's he's a big character in it, and he's the best part in there. So if you want to see more of him, watch that series. Uh. Yeah, so yeah, they're, they're all together. Like, there's not a lot to say about each character, like other than like, oh, I liked when he made that face there, <laughs> and when he said that line, because there's not a lot of you continuity as far as character. Bloody hell! Yes, absolutely. Um, then there's like a Hagrid, Robbie Coltrane, uh, just the wonderful, um, the, the whatever effects they and you know, forced perspective they use. Like, I'm, I'm assuming they had like a seven foot tall man on set, you know, for the shots of the kids, but like just. The integration of this enormous man who's actually, you know, what probably like, you know, average height was really well done. I, I don't ever think about it, which is a testament. That's, yeah, I, I think it's pretty much perfect the way it's done because I I never I'm never even really thinking, oh, how did they get that done? I'm just like the 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 idea Obviously Robbie Coltrane is seven feet tall and like four feet around in the middle. Yeah. Obvious. Uh, but like it, it really like I, it's never even a thought in my mind that like oh this guy's not actually that tall like to even think about Robbie Coltrane as if he was you know just my height would be like this no that's wrong. not right it's wrong yeah, yeah. like no I, I've seen the movies I know how tall he is mm-hmm. and, and the wig the whole design is fantastic the giant and coat the, they're really clever and, and smart with how they, they shoot him you know because whenever you're only seeing him from the waist up, you're not really having a deal, especially if you're the camera's actively pointing up, you're not really having to deal with a lot of forced perspective stuff, but it also makes sense with his scenes with them because it's kind of like a POV shot for them where they're, they are looking up at this towering giant of a man. And so you, you're giving yourself such an easy composition to, to sell his height at, but one that re- like works with these dynamics. Mm-hmm. And Hagrid is, he's just the best person. I baked it myself, words and all. Not every day your boy turns 11. Like, he's just the nicest I guy. I should have said that. 
<laughs> oh, his delivery of that line. That's another one. Like, man, I, I there's him and Maggie Smith. Like, I get why those are like that. No, it's gotta be them. They just, even as somebody who went as long as I have without seeing the movies, it's like that. Just it, those, those that accent, that voice, that attire. Like, it's just, it's just right. You know, like it just, it just feels so perfect. Maybe you should write it down. Nah, I can't spell it. <laughs> Uh, it's just every moment is lovely. And then, uh, let's just keep going through the cast. Uh, Richard Harris is Alvis Dumbledore. Uh, th- in one way, he's perfect, and in another way, I think he's like almost all wrong. Like when you read the books, like this line that Rowling goes back to, like pretty much every time he's reintroduced, that you know, he, you know, even though he looked really old, he gave off this feeling of immense energy. And there's if there's one thing I don't get looking at Richard Harris at this stage in life, it's energy. <laughs> He doesn't. He doesn't really have any. Um, I know that you know, he was. Part, he was like. At least, I know he was ill uh, during the filming Chamber of Secrets, but he you know, he feels very old and very tired. Um, even though he is, he's wonderful, and he, as we talked, you know, he has that the ageless wisdom and kindness and just that, that sense of authority. But I don't believe. Like I don't believe this person could you know go get into a wizard's duel with Voldemort. Like Harry could probably beat him in a wizard's duel, so yeah, like, I think he's right for these first two books where he doesn't play as much of an active role. But like, that one aspect of the character is totally missing. But it works because he is just the sweetest thing ever. Yeah, I, there's, you know, so you, with the character, somebody like Gandalf, he's McKellen really plays him with this kind of light. Like there's at times this. Kind this kind of meanness in him, uh, especially towards somebody like Pippin. Uh, Do not meddle with wizards, for they are subtle and quick to anger. Yeah, like there's he's, he's he can. Like, I mean, there's a reason you know give, this new Gandalf's grumpier than the old one. Uh, but he, I, I still find he has he's still got this very reassuring presence. Like if you know if he's got things under control, we're good. And when there's he's swinging different... around his staff, knocking down orcs, you buy it. Yeah, and and. You get like a, a confidence from him that there is there's something reassuring about his presence, and with Richard Harris, there's something reassuring about him as well. But it's an, it's this different kind. It is just it is this just this goodness and this gentleness and this kindness. It's just like it it really it feels like a warm blanket. Like there's just something so calming about it and it isn't just which is a vital aspect of who Dumbledore is I think something that Michael Gambon had trouble with sometimes I wonder sometimes his direction I wonder what he was given uh, <laughs> I mean I, I don't know if Mike Newell did direction just like do something <laughs> okay fine I will and then they cut that on camera <laughs> um, but yeah like it's just I I can't even though I mean you're definitely right, but like you also said, there's the, the the character becomes active in the story later on, and so for these first two, I I, I can't, I can't raise a single issue with him. He's just so perfect in it. <laughs> yeah, um, that is Maggie Smith as Minerva McGonagall. Uh, just the real MVP. <laughs> I, just the little looks she gives, like gives the kids various points. You know, where, when Draco kind of stands in front of the crowd before going to the Great Hall, and she like taps him on the shoulder with the paper, 
and looks at him. It's like, I, I, I buy that she could probably walk on that set and wrangle all the kids with just a single word. Her stern look is second to none. It's like, when she when like, oh, can you imagine the look on old McGonagall's face if we were late? She comes out and Rod's like, that was brilliant. And like, you, you feel like she almost swallows her, her, you know, her criticism. You know, thank you for that assessment, Mr. Weasley. Uh, she's probably the best character ever. Yeah. I, I love McGonagall so much. I just like the uh, little looks, the pained look she gives Neville when he does something Neville-ish. Um, it's... Uh, Again, like, we'll be able to talk more about these actors you know, as it goes on. Which is like, oh, I like that scene. I like that scene. I like that moment. That look. But it, it, it's all part. It's just part of the tapestry yeah. that is Hogwarts. Like most of the like, you have these legendary actors giving like four or five lines. But damn it, they give them well. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of oh, that one moment, that one line. I, whenever she sees Harry catch uh, the ball, the 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 what's it called? Uh, the snitch or the rememberall? The rememberall, yeah. Uh, and and she, you know, he thinks he's. Can a we can can we pause him. and appreciate the irony that you forgot the rememberall's name? <laughs> nice, uh, but in in that scene, like that is one of the most like, at least for me, just weirdly like feel good moments. We're like, you know, he, he the whole time he thinks he's getting directed attention. Mm-hmm. But that glimpse, that, that that moment, that it just humanizes it as at that at this point in the story, it humanizes her so much. We're like, she 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 also really cares about Quidditch. She likes her team, and she's she might overlook this if it. I don't know. It 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 really goes a long way in like creating this idea of who, of who McGonagall is, and, and just just the smile she gives him when he when he receives the broomstick. Like, like like that the character of McGonagall is so perfect because like she is that strict disciplinarian and she will kill you very badly if you cause trouble but also there's the, there's the the fairness you know and that little bit of warmth that she allows out every now and then like you the kind of person where like you never want to cross her but also she's absolutely the person you want to have your back in trouble yeah there, there's just a sense it, it's like the the strictness combined with the the prince like the, the strictness and principle of her character combined with the altruism you know like you get a sense that she genuinely stands for what is good and right and it's it's not for her this this kind of severity and harshness or, or you know strict adherence at least to to rules and this it's it's not like empty dogma or anything it comes from something genuinely good in her so that i don't know when she gives you those smiles or whenever she has your back it like it just means so much in the moment yeah yeah there isn't the feeling that even though she's so strict and you will get in trouble with her a lot there's never that feeling that she's out to get you like when she says explain yourself she actually wants to hear what you have to say and then she'll decide like if snape says explain yourself He's already determined he wants to expel you from school. Like there's the entire difference of like the the fairness of the character. And speaking of Snape, every, every casting is perfect, but I think this might be the most perfect. We we've all done Snape impressions, you know, like, and I, there's not a single person in the world who's gonna read these books now for the first time and not read it in the Alan Rickman voice. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> you want to be careful. People might think you're up, up to, to something. something. Just a little, a little pauses and like the sharp looks he gives. The, um, the like, raise of the eyebrow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the, I just, the, like the, the like hand in hand when then like in the cloak sleeves and stuff. The wig, oh, it's so perfect. Like the, the, again, just design. Like it's not just the actors, the design, be it McGonagall or or you know uh, Hagrid, Snape, all of the, the Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, like it's all just the, they're perfectly cast and perfectly designed. Which <laughs> the, the the first class when when Snape just like bursts through the room and like immediately into lecture. There will be no foolish wand waving. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's like, I think he's almost so good that you. I don't think like in the movies you hate Snape as much as you do in the books. Like for those first couple of books, you like Snape is the worst, and it's funny. Like th- that character, I think is fascinating because of the arc he goes on later in the series, and there's a kind of, kind of a contingent like oh. You know, maybe Snape wasn't that bad. Oh, he was you. Know, he was sad about Lily, and Harry was kind of trouble. No, Snape they, is the worst. He is. He, he, he you know, takes you know the first day of school. He picks his, a student, bullies him, and then for the rest of his life, you know, every interaction he gets, he takes every opportunity to, to um to bully him or humiliate him from the class. Like he's a terrible person. He's fascinating. He's really fun, but he's not. He's yeah. not good. That so. Whenever I started the books, I it wasn't like this this loud confirmation, but I had seen the the always gif um, out of context. But then there was a line, or there, there was just a comment I read that kind of alluded to either a redemption or or a twist reveal or something. And so even from Sorcerer's Stone, I kind of had it in my mind that like he's not all bad like he's really he's a good guy uh and all of this reassurance like or all of this confidence Dumbledore has in him is going to be justified and so after like just all of the meanness and all of like the true uh, indefensible cruelty he shows towards like Harry I kept waiting like how are they going to turn this around and then in the book the reveal comes and I'm like Okay, yeah, but he's still an a-hole. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no recontextualization of six of these, but like it's he's, he's still like even even whenever he's like Dumbledore's inside man, he's he never had to be half this mean to these people. He's a jerk, <laughs> but he's so good at it. Uh, another a very little role, but I think one just knocked out of the park is uh, John Hurt as Ollivander. Um, yeah, best movie intro, like one of the best movie intros ever. Where he comes to the sliding ladder. I want to introduce myself to people on a sliding ladder. Yeah, it's it's such an important scene. So like, you get this incredible actor who has this like the, the, the intensity, the slight maybe creepiness about him. Like you believe, like he knows everything. I remember every wand I ever sold. Like I believe it, and. Just, he is a master at wands and all the weirdness that entails like it's so it's just a tiny part but incredible yeah i i had a thought in this rewatch of like why for such a small role why it's so necessary for this to be someone like john hurt or at least somebody yeah, at least, yeah somebody like him and it's you know we we've had we've had moments of magic and stuff, but this scene is really where 
the wizarding world comes to life, you know, and there's and so Harry there's so much, officially enters it. Yeah. And this, this is the threshold, you know, and there's, especially with the way Rowling presents magic and a world in which magic, magical beings live, there's so much zaniness to it. There's so much wackiness to it. Like it's, I mean, they've got devices called light putter outers, uh, but we, we need like we need somebody like John Hurt because we don't we don't need to tame like or tone down or water down this moment to try to make it more palatable and not seem goofy or you know weird. So you you need it to be this bold, confident introduction to these are the kinds of people that populate this world. And mm -hmm. so you get someone like John Hurt who swivels down on this ladder and is just like so finicky with all of these and he's like i like like you said like i know everyone i've ever sold and he's but he's got such a command of the screen and his voice is just so awesome like this scene really there there's more resting on this scene than you'd think because it's like it's really where the 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 extremes of this world like the idea is that in this world there is a guy who has sold probably hundreds if not thousands of wands and i believe it when he says i remember every single wand i've sold like that's this this is the kind of world that that we're walking into and he just makes it work i love just the way he takes it in stride every time harry blows something up like nope nope definitely not and uh the, the shot oh the shot where harry grabs the wand and the oh. golden light comes the wind iconic it's, yeah it's like I don't think of, you know, Chris Columbus as one of the, you know, the great visual directors, but that's, that image is so cool. Uh, <laughs> so many actors. Uh, David Bradley is Arcus Filch. I've, we use the word perfect so much, but seriously. Yeah, I, I might go so far as to say, like, this is maybe like the best cast ensemble ever. Like, in terms of, yeah. at least in terms of adaptation or, or anything of that. There's a good argument for that. <laughs> Just the, the mad gleam in his eyes. That means there's a student out of bed. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he's truly insane, and I love it. I, I feel like we've kind of been roundabout, but I think we covered a lot of things. Oh, I think, like, one thing I think they probably should have cut, um, like, I think there's a lot of bits here that they could have cut to trim it down, but I think one scene that doesn't work for me is the, the uh, Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback scene. Um... Like they kind of, they trim it down that, that subplot down so much to where it's almost pointless. It, that's that's the the one area where it's like this doesn't feel fully thought out. Like it's it is kind of a, a a whole sequence in the book, and here it feels like a nod, but it's like it's it's too long to be a nod, but it's too short to be an actual subplot. So it just. It's this thing that happens. And like we are like if you want to establish he Hagrid loves big animals, you already have Fluffy. But also like there there's a whole thing happening in the latter half of the book where Harry, Ron, and Hermione, they get in trouble because of trying to take the Norbert to the tower to help Hagrid. They get in trouble, they lose like 150 points from Gryffindor, and everyone hates them. It's like a really miserable part of the book where everyone hates Harry. He found his home, he found his Quidditch, you know, the quid thing he's good at with Quidditch, and now everyone thinks he's the worst and no one wants to talk to him. And it's like just legit sad. 
And then that kind of culminates with Neville like saying, you know, you can't lose this any more points is what, where he's where he's standing up to them before they go into the climax. Like that, 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 that they, they, they do lose the points. They get detention. They go into the Forbidden Forest. But I think the um that the aspect of how devastating it is to them and their relationship with their fellow students for losing that points has never really gotten across. So when Neville does stand up to them, it doesn't mean as much. Um, because the the threat of losing the House Cup is never really established. Like it's like they, they, they included the pieces of that subplot, but they never they forgot to connect it together. And like that's what you do in movies. Like you know, for, between the second and third act, you have that miserable little period where everything goes wrong, and then they can fix it in the third act. It's like it's like it's it's right there, but they kind of missed they you know mismanaged the pieces. Yeah, it's like that sequence is kind of where the the book to movie translation isn't able to fully capture the feelings where it's like, I guess you could do montages, but in the books, you just, you get to kind of sit in this feeling of, <laughs> of, of misery of like, man, people, people don't like me anymore. Yeah. Speaking of arcs, I think that would have been a pretty interesting one where like, you know, he's an outcast in the real world. He comes in, you know, he succeeds, he's winning, he's this beautiful new home and family and then something goes wrong and everyone hates him. And maybe he's beginning to doubt whether he belongs in the wizarding world. And then you could have like in the climax, you know, him deciding, you know, this is, this is my home. This is what I'm a part of. Like you could have had that arc in there. All the pieces are there. Uh, but nope, we got to talk about, uh, <laughs> we just had to include every single moment from the book instead. Um, and you know what? I still have a good time with that. Oh yeah. Uh, so let's move into the climax. Um, Again, I think another issue where like it's like the segmentation of the of the, this movie is taken, you know, taken, you know, put on, is put on steroids to where like oh we have this challenge and then this challenge and this challenge and then we have the you know, the final scene where it's, it's like like I, the the structure of this climax is from the book. Uh, however, like you know, a book can afford to be segmented in that way. Whereas I feel like this climax. It starts and stops over and over and over again as we go through each challenge. And they even cut some challenges that were. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah they, they they sharpen or they shorten it up a bit. But even so, it, it kind of feels underwhelming, at least for me at the end, when all is said and done. Like, oh, that was it. Like, even though it's been a really long to do. Um, well, that's the thing. for me. It doesn't really feel like a long to do. Like it, it feels like. And I mean, in a way it can't because it is so like, it's so even geographically divorced from everything else. You know, how long do you really want to spend down in this, this area? Um, it depends if it's that chess set quite a long time. Well, yeah, man, I, I have thoughts on the chess set, but <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's go through the, through the, uh, through the challenges. First one was the okay. devil's snare. And th this is one of the examples of people give of how Ron is done dirty, right? In the book, um, Ron is the one who you know, tells you, are you a witcher, aren't you? And, you know, to, to let, you know, it tells her how to light the fire. Um, and whereas in the movie, he just kind of panics and does his, you know, Rupert Grit thing. Um, but however, I, I, th I think that's partially correct. However, they, they, this is the scene they gave to Hermione instead of in the book there was a there was like potions and a riddle and she solved that that was her challenge in the climax they cut that so they gave her the devil snare scene so I think that works and, and Ron still gets you know his big triumphant chess moment um so, I, probably, so 
I don't have too much too many complaints in that regard as far as how he's done it. At least in this film, we'll kind of we'll kind of keep an eye on uh, how Ron does in each movie. But I think he's done pretty well here. Yeah, and he gets I I quote uh, his line for some reason it's in doing like a Rupert Grant Ron impression. This is the line that's fun, like most fun to me. It's like it's got to be you, Harry, not me, not Hermione, you. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, and so then there's the uh, the 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 flying on the broomsticks, and effects are not great with the keys and all that. And uh, this is something that has never looked good in the history of film: is a character kind of waving away CGI objects around them. Oh, like, it's bad. As, and it's especially bad when you're like, man, these are like these are heavy iron keys flying around, like. You're not just like every time you wave your arm around and it like makes any contact, that's gonna freaking hurt. But it's like it's like there's swatting flies or gnats or something. Yeah, and then there's the the chess the chess uh, game. I'm, I I can't I don't care what you say if if you don't think this is at least the most gorgeous set ever, I'm gonna cut you from this call. No, the set is phenomenal. Like the pieces are incredible. the The way the pieces move, I the love. sound design. The sound design is incredible, but like watching for all all the crap we can give the effects watching like the chess pieces move about and like mm-hmm. twist and like it looks so cool but, uh, the transition but, into from from like real ceramic things into yeah. cgi models yeah, like, is it's flawless. really really cool uh my issue is like i i want to see at least part of the chess game i i the the fact that it james i have bad news for you chess is boring dude no chat okay <laughs> this is a complete aside but a bunch of my friends here have all gotten into chess at the same time i'm too stupid to join them but i like watching them chess is surprisingly enjoyable to watch if you know like borderline know what's going on um which all the 10 year olds in the audience totally exactly did. <laughs> well here we're, we're we should be encouraging and cultivating an interest in chess um, but well, no, it's just the thing is cinematically, I feel like even if you don't just do an extended period of like, oh, and then he moves here. I, I, I'm just not a big fan of like the montage of just these low Dutch angles of pieces blowing up and stuff. Like, but you those Dutch angles look really good. <laughs> I mean, they're cool, but it's just, I don't, I wanted a, it's a, it's a, a moment of strategy and the the way we present that cinematically is just a montage of explosions. Oh, but the music. Oh, the music is awesome. John Williams' dr- drums he has going, uh, perfect. I, I I kind of agree, but also, it's it's so freaking hard to make chess cinematic and actually get a because it it takes so long and it's so incomprehensible if you don't know how how exactly it works or what they're doing. I mean, it's just people quietly staring at a board and then moving dramatically um I, I don't even know how they would make it look cinematic but uh yeah I, I i get what you're saying and so then we move on to the final thing and honestly i i don't i find this fight the final confrontation between harry and uh curl slash valdi kind of black um it's just like they're kind of standing in a room across from each other yelling at each other and then it's over <laughs> yeah i i i mean it's the last thing you want in a movie but this is like the and it sounds super harsh, but this is the low point in the movie for me. This this is where I'm just like, okay, where I I kind of there was there was fun stuff going on before, but like this 
point, he just, because Harry still hasn't fully, you know, been carved out as, as a, a full character and because the, the Harry Dumble or Harry, um, uh, Voldemort rivalry and history isn't like as as sharply defined yeah. as it becomes in the in the series. It's just it just feels like it's Harry, this eleven year old kid, shouting at this creepy guy who's shouting back at him, and then something happens. Yeah, uh, that was something I thought about. Do you feel that this that this movie sets up this legendary Voldemort, you know, wizard Hitler, this the most feared figure? And they won't even say his name. Like, do you feel this movie sets up him as an appropriately terrifying figure? I feel like it does a pretty good job of creating a sense of history for him. But it's just how it presents him as opposed, like, as as something that opposed Harry. I don't know. Contained just to itself, I don't feel like it, like it works. And maybe that's because he's. We get just a couple of scenes where he's mentioned, but really we just have two hours of being introduced to this wizarding world. So that like whenever we get to this truncated, like here's after t- two hours of chilling out, here's twenty minutes of of a climax punctuated by a confrontation. So okay, yeah, maybe maybe not. Maybe we don't hype him up as much as we should yeah I feel there, there's there was a, a strange lack of scenes where harry says his name and people like choke or fall out of their chairs or something the the the, the mystique around the character just wasn't felt for me um which kind of goes into the the climax not like like this is it, it's it's a it's a catastrophic world-ending threat but it doesn't really feel like it um and also i think ian hart as quirrell is really inconsistent like sometimes when he's like goofy and stuttering he's amazing a troll in the dungeon for sure to know like that that's perfect but then like here he's just it's weird like come here potter now like he's so over the top and strange there's a couple of deliveries in this climax that felt borderline cringy to me where it's like he's like he's trying to spit lines with that kind of venom but it feels like feels like pretty good like uh i don't know local theater performance <laughs> which that's i've i've had the the pleasure of seeing actually pretty good uh local theater performances so that doesn't that's not as harsh as some people may take it it's just it's like you know we're watching you know over 100 million dollar film with you know people like richard harris and you know Maggie Smith and these these incredible actors, and and so any any non child role that feels like it's trying instead of natural, it just kind of sticks out. And so whenever we're at the end and he's supposed to be just spitting these lines, it does feel a bit like this guy's trying to sound scary, but yeah, it's not coming right. And there's some weird choices, like the, the the way they portrayed his him being burned by Harry's skin is strange. Like in the book, where it, it, like if he touched anywhere in anywhere in Harry's body, it like it, his skin burned him. Whereas here, like it only burns if Harry's Harry like literally touches him with his hand. 
Um, also, like the whole ash, like his, his, like burning, literally burning his hand and his face to ash. I mean, it felt like a kind of a cowardly cop out. Like, it would be so much more disturbing like, if, like, he's like having like red blisters and all that. Like, you don't get mm. did too gruesome, but there, there nope. was something so scar our children. But there, there was something so powerful and just terrifying in that scene in the book where he's like he's grabbing him, like he's like pleading with Voldemort, like I can't touch him, it's burning me. And like, Harry's trying to touch him as much as possible as he's being strangled and Quirrell's screaming, and it's just like really stressful scene. And it, it just, it feels really tamed down, even though Harry, like, intentionally commits murder, like, where he runs at him and lays his hand on his face, knowing he's going to, you know, burn away to nothing. It, it, even though it's, like, so much more gruesome when you think about it, it feels so much more tame. It's strange. Well, because, I mean, if we're comparing what we got with what you're proposing, I mean, the, the reason it feels like one feels tame versus, you know... a a more there's less agony faithful and realistic <laughs> depiction well it's it's it also just be you know when you think about the effects needed for either like for what they did you lose that skin texture and that realism whenever you go with the ashes because then it just becomes a cgi and i think the cgi actually looks pretty good like i think the way it, it all happens looks pretty good i think that looks pretty good but it's it's CGI, and so like it doesn't feel like it hurts as much because you get you hit that point of CG where it's like you lose the skin texture and the that. But if you do like what you're talking about, like which is like this boils, then it's like it's these prosthetics and this makeup, this real tangible stuff, and so like it's it, it's like implied in the book that he was burned so badly he died. Like it's it, it's 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 intense. <laughs> Um, but uh, but speaking of the effects, uh, the head actually looks really good, and like its faces are very difficult to do in CGI, as evidenced by the horrifying rubber people on the broomsticks. Um, but like the the, the the face they have on the back of Quirrell's head, it looks pretty good. Like the actual like the dialogue, the matching the mouth, the dialogue, it all it all works pretty well as an effect for me. Um, yeah, and it's it's, it's appropriately horrible and horrifying. Yeah, it's disturbing to me. It's one of those things that even still like <laughs> watching it now, I'm still like, ah, this is off-putting, isn't it? And like in a way that it should be, but it just it feels unnatural. Like the there's something wrong about it. It's it's a weird kind of creepy. Yeah, we, we already talked about um the hospital wing, but we go to the end of term feast. Um, a lot of people complain that Dumbledore is unfair in giving out how many points he gives out, but they save the world. Like there are teachers who will give out 10 points for answering a question correctly. 50 points for saving the world is not all that outrageous. So I completely agree with that, but the meme is too good that I have to <laughs> Uh I, I guess waiting right up until the last minute just to rub it into Slytherin, that's, the that's a bit they much. Him, they let him change the flags. <laughs> But Gryffindor deserved to win. Any way you look at it. Uh <laughs> I mean, yes, but but I don't know. It, the memes where he's like he's doing the calculation in his head to figure out just how much to make sure they win. <laughs> or like uh, where's Dumbledore? I don't know. Uh and then one of them calls out, you know, Slytherin wins and Dumbledore bursts through the wall. <laughs> Fifty points to Gryffindor. <laughs> uh good memes, but no, no. Harry deserved it. Uh yeah, and we end with a feast. Uh, or we don't end with a feast, but we there's a feast very close to the ending. 
as all good stories have. Yeah, anything else you want to mention? Man, here, here's the thing. So uh, while I may not be like emotionally in, as invested in these character arcs and everything going on, I am I am genuinely invested in their friendship and in the location of their friendship and just Hogwarts in general. Whenever that music plays as they're boarding the train and like we have our goodbyes and stuff, I get I get emotional. Like it there's there's just something so like wholesome about this movie and about their friendship and and Harry's journey here and like even though it's only a, a fraction of of the of a story that we we get in the book like it's still as we get that that music that that fantastic goodbye theme from williams like I, I, this is a this is a good journey like this is a good two and a half hours i spent yeah it's like it's hard to talk about this movie because i i, I usually like to focus on the character arcs and the themes and the journeys and like there's not really a lot of that happening in this film. So it's like, oh, I like that scene. Yeah, I like that scene too. That was, like, there's so much to love about this movie, but it's kind of, I'm kind of running out of it's, things to talk about. It's more fun. Like, it's one of those ones that's fun to watch with somebody. You know, like, because we're not having to recall, oh, do you remember when that one scene had? It's just like, no, we're just, we're on a couch chilling watching a fun movie. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of move into uh, talking about the score kind of before we close out. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think I don't think I'm too out of line in saying I believe Hedwig's theme is is possibly like top three, easily top five, you know, f- cinematic themes of all time. Uh, would you agree with that? I, I mean, I haven't put as much thought into my own list, but in, in terms of, I mean, I think an argument could definitely be made for that. It's certainly the most culturally recognized theme. I feel like outside of, outside of star Wars, you know, and maybe James Bond, uh, and even that I'd put, I'd, I'd say you could at this point in time, Indiana could, Jones. See, I, I think now though, we probably, you're, you're getting more, you get more recognition. And I mean, it only makes sense because it's the movies, these are the movies they grew up with. But I think there's more, that that theme has more of a cultural foothold than maybe even like, you know, that the guitar riff and Bond now. Mm-hmm. But that theme is just like, you, it's, it's magic. You, especially like it's the, the slow piano one where it's just that quiet little, entry where there's the space in between the notes you play you, you won't get past the first three notes before maybe even really there's something about just like the pitch and everything with that that they're playing with you probably hit that first note and it just kind of like sends a shiver down your spine like you, you know what it is yeah the, the instrument's called uh, uh celesta i think uh it's it, it's this very tinkly i think like yeah the opening notes of like the nutcracker it's it's very Christmassy sounding. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so it's it it feels like ancient, but also very childlike. It's and just the theme is there's it, so much it captures so much. You could say it feels like X Y Z. Like it, there's so much that it feels like all of it at once to me. Yeah, this is there's a mystery, there's a history to it. And I, I was thinking about I remember when we were talking about the line that was in the wardrobe and how the music there it felt so intrinsically magical and mystical and just childlike wonder. And so does this, but 
I think the difference is that whereas I think the Narnian music, you think, you know, forest and snow and clear blue skies. And inviting. Yeah. Whereas I think the Harry Potter music, I'm thinking castles and cathedrals and stone walls and, a little and, bit of, and history. And, and there's something that could be a little bit dangerous about it. Like Yeah, it's a mystery to it. Yeah, it's, it's just like there's a sense of just history and it is it, it, it's, it's inviting, but also there might be a wizard out there who's going to kill me. It's, it's it's all in this theme and the music. And man, even thinking about it now, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, but like it all, like I feel like there's a story being told just through the music. Like you get those first two and it's like, it's this invitation to recognize it. Like you're like, okay, I know what that is. But then you had like the dun, 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 dun. And so it's, it's, that's where you really like, I don't know. There's like this trepidation there. Like, like an understanding that there, there's some level of danger here. Uh, the later movies really play with that part. You get really dark yeah. and you know, booming. And then, but like, especially with, with these first, like with the title reveals, then we just get to the full, like we bring in all the horns and we, we spell out, you know, Harry Potter and the uh, Sorcerer's Stone. And it's just like, at that point, everything magical in the world just comes to life in that music. Um, so like that, there's the Hedwig's theme, and then there's a Harry's Wondrous World, which is the other big Harry Potter theme, which is just like there's it's just, there's no danger. It's just big, joyous, like full hearted triumph. Um, it just makes you happy. All is right with the world. John Williams playing with the brass, and I'm happy. It's kind of funny. There are really all. I, I feel like there's only like three. Th- themes or motifs that he uses that he just plays over and over again throughout the film but if you created you know Hedwig's theme and Harry's Wondrous World I guess you do get to kind of you know rest on your laurels and just repeat those over and over again Um, because there really isn't all that much after those two those two cues a couple tracks I do want to mention here there's the prologue which is Hedwig's theme Harry's Wondrous World which is that theme Uh, the arrival of baby Harry which is mostly Hedwig's theme but also that kind of the mystery cue the vocals you know what I'm talking about like as the camera goes through double is like these like choral vocals come in like this very mysterious cue that kind of comes back throughout the film uh the chess game which is like this very martial heavy drum beat which is it's, it's like there's a lot of urgency and danger and purpose it's it's really fun to listen to and then you finally have the uh, Hedwig's theme which is just the full suite and I, I it's like five minutes but I could listen to that over I could listen to that all day I wouldn't get tired of it mm, that's so good just the way he plays through the, all the various variations of uh, of that theme, and just it's it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> all right. Um. So James, what do you give this film out of five stars? You know, we use a five star ten point system here. Uh, Two point five would be completely average. Um, and anything you know above is uh, anything above two point five is positive. Anything below that is negative. Um. So what do you give this film, James? Uh, so I give this three and a half out of five. Uh. I, I feel like four stars is where I would I start calling movies like genuinely great. And for as much as you know, as positive as I was on this, I mean, we we've also covered some of the stuff that keeps it held back. You know, there's the plot really is absent for a, a, a super long time. The the effects aren't always super great. And and for me, the the climax is pretty disappointing. Um, but outside of those things it's such a pleasant jovial experience for me like i just have 
such a fun time with all of these first moments that they have. And so it's, is a very, it's like, it's one of those three and a halfs that like, I don't, does that feel like it's like, oh, I could, even though it could have been more technically, it's not one of those ones that I like, I begrudgingly give out. It's like, no, this is a confident three and a half. Like, oh, it was really good. I, I really like this movie a lot. Yeah. So I also give it three and a half, but I think it's like, when I look at the story and a lot of the tactical elements, I think it's a three star film but it's just so gosh darn charming and it gets and, and i think from a legacy standpoint when you look when you count all of the things it got right you know to send this series on its way to become the behemoth it is like you 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 have to acknowledge that so that extra half star like it's a it's probably a three-star film but it got so many tiny little things right that might have not you know may not didn't come into full full fruition here i that uh yeah, I'll, I'll give it that. So as, for, as far as the box office, on its initial release, it earned $317 million in the domestic markets and $617 in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $974 million. Since then, it has had various re-releases, the most notable being uh, a international re-release in 2020, which brought in an additional $31 million, which carried it over the $1 billion line. So now it's it's up. Now it has over a billion dollars, but it didn't initially make that. Um, currently, it stands at one billion and six million. On its release, I, I was I I meant to look this up. I forgot to. But it, it was was one of the highest grossing films of all time. I th- I have a feeling it was like second or third highest grossing of all time on its release. You know, since then it's been passed many times over. But it was a massive smash hit. As far as the series, uh, it stands at number two both internationally and domestically. Only, only behind uh, Deathly Hallows Part Two. As far as a critical reception, it holds a uh, an 82 on Rotten Tomatoes and an, a 64 on Metacritic, which indicates that you know, it was liked but probably not loved. But one of the critics who did actually love the film was Roger Ebert. Uh, he gave it his the first the full five stars. Oh, yeah, sorry, no, he doesn't do five stars. He has four stars. Yeah. He gave it the full four stars, uh, which is his highest rating. Uh, and there's a really wonderful excerpt from his review that I wanted to quote. Um, he said, uh, during Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, I was pretty sure I was watching a classic, one that will be around for a long time and make many generations of fans. It takes the time to be good. It doesn't hammer the audience with easy thrills, but cares to tell a story and to create its characters carefully. Like Wizard of Oz, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Star Wars and E.T., it isn't just a movie, but a world with its own magical rules. And like, I think like, even all the problems I have with this film, like he's absolutely right as far as just being that incredible magical introduction to this world. And I think that, that, that is something that I think I haven't heard a single person who, even if they don't, they kind of dismiss the early Columbus um, films. I don't know anyone who disagrees with as far as establishing this incredible magical world. Like, yeah, I, I haven't really noticed a lot of anybody really ready to pick a fight with Sorcerer's Stone. Like, it feels like one everybody kind of likes, at least. It's funny. Like, there are a lot of people who don't like Chamber of Secrets, and they kind of just say, oh, it's just, you know, Columbus doing his super faithful kind of boring thing. But even those people, they kind of have a soft spot. I think it's just, it just it was the first. Everybody is contractually obligated to like it because it's so it's such a big part of their childhoods and just film history. Um, there's, there's so much nostalgia. And it's funny. It's one of those films that... Like the book purists, they love it. 
film fans like it just you know normal people outside of film culture they all have all this incredible nostalgia for it it's just like everybody likes it it's a good feeling so it was it was nominated for a best art direction which is now best production design it lost that one uh to moulin rouge um fellowship of the ring probably should have won actually or, uh, or, absolutely should have won i mean i wouldn't be i would not mind if this film won it either like this is one of the most beautifully designed films of all time either uh got best costume design also lost that to moulin rouge that also should have gone to uh lord of the rings <laughs> uh and it was and finally was nominated for um best musical score from john williams that however went to uh the, the correct choice which is fellowship of the ring and howard shore so mm. there is a little bit of justice in this world and it's worth fighting for <laughs> um so legacy james what is this film's legacy oh my gosh here's the thing I uh, the the legacy of this film and this series is so incredibly enduring. We all like I guarantee you any everybody has like some friend in their friend circle who's just a massive Potterhead. Like me. There you go. Like oh, either you have one or you are the Potterhead in the friend <laughs> circle. Like it's. I mean, knowing your house cup is just a bit of like knowledge like it's just a bit of trivia we all have about ourselves or not house cup knowing knowing our house is like hufflepuff for life exactly and i hold to that and i'm very prideful of that fact you're you're one too oh absolutely awesome Puff is the best definitively um but like yeah like we we know like we have our houses we know our house colors like we it's just I, I know people who are generally uninterested in the the overall story, but who still love the world itself. Mm-hmm. Like they just love the idea of the wizarding world. Like e- even those who didn't read the books, everyone saw the movies, you know, except for the <laughs> the religious people who. <laughs> yeah. But even the even though all the kids who grew up in homes who didn't let them watch Harry Potter, they've since watched Harry Potter since growing exactly. up. Like, and so, like it's it's just such a cultural just tight like just this cultural titan it's it reaches into games music and uh i mean the amount of like people you'll see in in hogwarts uh robes during halloween it's like it's just it's so huge there's not a single fantasy book you know, aimed at younger audiences that is not compared directly to Harry Potter since then. It is, it's the authoritative text for children's fantasy. And I was like, and it, it, it gets into the big boy conversation, you know, as far as just fantasy in general. Like, it's right up there with Lord of the Rings, The Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, Earthsea. Like, like, take your pick. It's, it, it's, it's gonna come into the conversation as the greatest of all time for fantasy. As far as film history, like, it's, Alongside Lord of the Rings, it started the fan, you know the fantasy movie craze of the early two thousands, and then a decade later, it started the YA craze alongside Twilight. Like, it's been it's been like at the center of these massive movements in film, you know, for its entire run. Like, mo- mo- like all the other series, aside from like Twilight, all the other series they started and they faded out. Like, did any have any of the other fantasy series that came out finished? Well, you got you got Hunger Games. No, I mean, I'm a fantasy. Like the the, the fa- you have like your you know, the Aragon, Narnia, uh, uh, 
just there's, there's so many of them i'm blind, I'm blanking right now but like all those the films that uh, Percy Jackson, the films that tried to be Harry Potter, all of them, they, they started, some of them started well, and then they kind of just fizzled out. Same with the YA craze, but like, this this thing, this series maintained, not, not just relevance, but dominance throughout its entire existence. And it was a lot, like, a, you know, a 10-year run. Well, it's like you said, Sorcerer's Stone is second uh, in the series to Deathly Hallows Part 2. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's, when it ended, it wasn't this oh did the last one come out it's like no this was a, a cultural event when it ended yeah so it, it, it's pretty big pretty important kind of like i i didn't even grow up with i didn't i didn't read the series till i was in my 20s and like i'm as big a potterhead as you can find um it's you know you think you you brought up that that fact about the book sales like it's one of the it, you know the most successful recorded you know, book in terms of sales. And I feel like even though the movie doesn't necessarily have that, you know, that comparable stat about the movie, like, you know, obviously it's not the highest grossing film, but I still feel like in a way you can say that in terms I mean, of popularity. It earned 21 million on a re-release. <laughs> like that's, that doesn't happen often. Yeah. And, and so like, even though it doesn't have, the movie version of that stat, I feel like you could still kind of say for as popular as that book is, like the, the movie at least matched that in popularity. Like it's not, it's not one where, I mean, because those books were so incredibly popular, the, the movies were, you know, they were just never going to be able to be, like I, they were never going to be able to achieve what the books did. Despite that towering literary achievement, the movies, like when you say Harry Potter, the f- people are going to see Daniel Radcliffe before they see anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, it's something that has stuck around. May- maybe it's fading now. Like the last fantastic beasts uh, film earned less. And so we'll see how that goes, but at least, you know, up until now, like it's, it's integration into pop culture has stayed just as strong as it ever had. Whereas like, there are so many crazes, like Twilight, for example. That was ama- it was incredibly, you know, widespread and beloved. But who talks about Twilight now? I do with my fanfic. Like, it's it's gone beyond just you know a, a, a sh- like a short zeitgeist you know cultural phenomenon into. I think it's part of our culture and it's it's here to stay at least as long as you know the millennial generation endures is going to be part of our culture and and by that time i think it'll be cemented well enough as a classic to to maintain its legacy even if it does it's not as beloved 50 years from now it's important it's big it's awesome it's wonderful ah, i'm tired of my voice is about to go out so uh, i think it's a good time to wrap it up all right that was our our review of harry potter and the sorcerer's stone I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you to please uh, take a moment uh, to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating review. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, where there's Franchise Fatigue Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisedPod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And James, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hammer. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also find the both of us, along with some other friends, over at The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group on Facebook. Uh... And given that we're right in the middle of the Bad Batch, there is a lot of Star Wars content to talk about right now in a positive light. 
So if you still love Star Wars and you love talking about it and you're excited for everything coming out, uh, feel free to join us over there. I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01 where I put out these uh, movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and other fun stuff. So the next thing up will probably be a, a Bad Batch episode, uh, but after that we'll be talking about uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, a movie which I have endless good things to say about, and I am, I am really pumped. I have, I'm, I've been like standing out there like holding a candle out for this film and just fighting for it for so long. Um, and now I finally get a chance at a, pot, a platform to rave. Um, so be prepared. I'll just sit in the corner for the next one. <laughs> yeah. I'll co-sign it. I really like it a lot. So I'm sure that I'll, I'll be agreeing. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed or worse, expelled. Expelled.